gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Now looking at his watch because apparently a woman's spoken too long. God's kingdom will come. It is in his hands. We trust in him. We don't trust in governments. You want to go down that path today, I will (laughs) do it. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowds Politics podcast. I'm your host, Joel, back from a week of being sick and unable to speak. And tonight I am joined by Jason and Ali. Uh, how are we both feeling tonight? Yeah. Yeah, not too bad. We definitely missed yeah, you cool. last week. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, well, it's a, it's a good week to come back, I think, because it has been quite interesting in terms of the things that have gone down. So, of course, recently we had the New South Wales election, uh, which looks like it has gone to Labor. Um, However, there are still a few seats in doubt, of course, which will determine whether it is a minority or a majority government. Uh, Jason, do you want to walk us through some of those seats in doubt? Labor only has 46 uh, predicted seats, which would leave them in a minority and would require them to make a deal in order to form government if it the counting stopped now. But any number of these seats could go either way, even though they're a little bit far down in the counting process. Uh, 78% for Goulburn, 73% for Terrigal. There's 0.3% margin, 240 votes for Terrigal. That could still go either way, even that far down in the counting uh, depending on where the votes are coming from in the electorate, obviously, Goulburn, which is 50.5 to 49.5 at the moment, 368 votes, 78%. Ride has ALP ahead, the only one of these that still has the seats in doubt that still has a, the ALP ahead, still only 234 votes, 73% counted, could go either way. Um, the last one, Holsworthy. counted, 50.7% towards the Liberal Party. 526 votes, again, another knife's edge. It's probably a little bit safer. Kayama is the weirdest one. Independent Gareth Ward, who got kicked out of the Liberal Party in the last term, faring quite well, probably a lot better than a lot of people would have thought that he would, given um, the kind of stories that are in the media, though, it did seem that he had quite a lot of local support and a lot of Liberal Party voters, uh, I think, in the area would split with the Liberal Party to vote for him. Yeah, interesting. Um, quite a lot going on with New South Wales electorates. Uh, I'm surprised there are so many that are like dangling just on the nice edge of like a few hundred votes. So that's that's really, really crazy. Um, definitely a... Definitely a bit of a, a wacky election uh, for the new the, the new South Welshman there. <laughs> um, we also this week have the wording for the referendum question on the voice to parliament being announced. So the specific wording is: Do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? So that's the question. In terms of the draft words to be added to the constitution, we have. One, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representation to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Three, that Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Um, So, you know, uh, there's already been 
a bit of controversy surrounding this. Uh, I know that um, that there's there's been some sort of uncertainty about uh, as to what the specific wording would be, um, because there were sort of uh, black letter conservatives um, wanting to rein in the powers of the voice even more if you can even call them powers really it's a pretty it's a pretty limited sort of advisory uh, advisory power so yeah uh we have that going on and you can expect to be voting on that sometime in you know later this year um otherwise we also have the aston by election coming up this saturday so we've talked about this on the podcast before and this is all about whether or not the liberals can you know uh restake their claim on the seat following everything that's gone down Todge, um or whether it will be uh, a seat for the labor party to take with their uh with their new up-and-coming candidate um yes so with that out of the way um, we will get into our main topics of discussion for this week. Uh, so we've got a good lineup uh, talking about the Housing Australia Future Fund, uh, some whistleblower protection laws, as well as uh, what's going on in Israel right now with uh, Netanyahu and judicial reforms and, and such. So a good lineup. And we'll kick it off by talking about the Housing Australia Future Fund. And this is my topic. So I'll, I'll take you through it. So pretty much Housing Australia Future Fund, you might remember this from the election as a as a campaign promise from the Labor Party, uh, pretty much to set up like a social wealth fund for housing. Uh, they're going to put $10 billion towards it. And the goal for this would be like they will invest this money into the Australian economy with the hopes that they will make a profit on it and they'll be able to put these profits towards building social and affordable housing. So the Greens have recently... Uh, sort of added a few conditions to their support for the Housing Australia Future Fund bill, which will likely hit the parliament uh, you know, this this year, of course. Um, and they are saying that uh, if they are, if you know, if Labor wants them to support the bill, then what they're looking at is number one, uh, cap rent increases for two years uh, to help the seven hundred thousand people in um, you know, in in need of like uh, rental housing. Um, and to add an extra $5 billion uh, to the funding. So taking that from, um, I believe, just $10 billion to $5 billion. In fact, it might be an annual $5 billion, I think. Um, so this is what the Greens are saying is the, you know, the, the necessary uh, caveats for them to support the bill. Um, in response, Labor have framed the, the sort of whole bill as more like a supplementary measure, essentially saying that, yeah, this is, you know, we, we know this probably isn't enough, uh, but we also expect this to be to work in tandem with funding regimes established by state governments for housing as well. We also have independents weighing in on this. So Jackie Lambie and David Pocock have expressed uh, concerns similar to the Greens about like the ability of this bill to deal with the housing crisis. Uh, with Pocock in particular stating that the net amount of social housing would be less um, but then when the when the national rental affordability scheme eventually like winds down later this year. So, you know, like I get essentially saying that the Housing Australia Future Fund does not make up for the housing that will be lost through the wind down of the uh the the NRAS. Uh, it's also worth noting that uh of course to solve like the housing crisis, we are looking at pretty much like a you know, like a minimum of like a million or so new houses as well. So obviously the Housing Australia Future Fund does not solve that. 
But what do we think? Do we think that uh, that the bill, yeah, the Greens should suck up a bit and just like pass the bill anyway, or do we think that there's merit in pushing Labor to go further with the uh, with the Housing Australia Future Fund? I think in this case, there's absolutely merit in pushing them to go further. It's it's not going far enough. We're we're in a really bad situation, and the impact of all of this. We're only kind of we. Ha- I don't think we've even really begun to feel the impact of what this will kind of lead to. Uh, and the situations people will find themselves in, it'll be really devastating. Uh, I think it's really disappointing that the government aren't willing to go further, especially in a time like this. Well, I think it's if we included rent increases, housing value exploding in our calculation of inflation, inflation at the moment it does not take into account rent and say far greater amount of people are being put into rental stress, which means more than a third of your income going into just paying uh, for your housing. I'm not saying that the answer to that is the normal answer of like, well, that would show that inflation is much higher because people's day-to-day costs of something they're consuming. Because like the, currently the calculation, the economists say, we don't calculate it because it's not something you consume on a day-to-day basis. Well, I very much consume my bed on a day-to-day basis. I consume the house that I live in. I uh, am uh, existing because of that money being spent. And the fact that it's not taken into account kind of means that the inflation almost over time paints a rosier picture. And the only thing they have is the hammer of raising interest rates, but you could increase supply with things like this fund by jacking it up. Another five billion, another, like how many submarines worth could we forego to just get people enough housing to get by and live and be affordable? Like if anything is a priority, it should be this. Yes, yes. So I'm of a few minds on this. Because I, I quite like the framework of the Housing Australia Future Fund. I do quite like this idea of establishing essentially a social wealth fund for housing uh, that will that we will put into social and affordable housing like over the course of the years to come. I quite like this in concept. So I, I would be quite disappointed to, to not have that go through. I think it's not a bad way to ensure that money is directed towards housing in Australia. With that said, yeah, the the ten billion is certainly not enough. I would say I think this is an area where Labor are being probably a bit too cautious, perhaps unjustifiably cautious as well. I would say obviously housing policy in Australia can be uh, can be can be controversial, um, and people you know don't like you know necessarily like having their you know having their housing prices threatened by the construction of social housing and and all these sorts of things, of course, uh, but. I think there is still opportunity for labor here to go a bit further than this. Um, because like if, if you're going to commit to building social housing, then you might as well go, but yeah, you know, I would say go all the way, maybe not all the, you know, you, you don't have to pull a Sweden and, you know, do, you know, the, the build a million project or whatever. Um, but like, yeah, we, you can probably do a bit more than this. So I'm, I'm not opposed to the greens pushing them on, on this point a bit more, even though I, I do, you know, I, I would be disappointed to see this fall through, but I think that would be more labor's fault than, than anyone else's. What do you guys think of the proposal to cap rents? Do you think that that's a viable solution kind of looking long-term? You've kind of got people who tow both lines um, with some, like with some people kind of suggesting that it's, 
it, it won't actually help in the long term. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I'm I'm of that position. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I, certainly not, won't I'm, help in the long term. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not massive on the on the push for a rent freeze specifically. Yeah. I would say um, I, I think the Greens are perfectly reasonable in pushing for like more funding and such. I think the 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 idea of like a two year rent freeze. I think this is I don't know like not necessarily taking things in in the right direction. Uh, like for for renters, um, so obviously with like a you know that kind of strong program of of rent control, uh, we 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 tend to understand rent control as well i tend to understand it. it's a bit of a band-aid sort of policy i would say like rent, rent control uh, rent control is sort of an acknowledgement that house prices are not where they should be and it's just the government sort of stepping in and saying all right so we're going to force them to be to be to be at this to be at this stage instead uh, rather than just like you know tinkering with the actual supply demand curve in itself and you know ensuring that like using like supplier to like push down prices instead so I think, like for those reasons, like I'm not sort of massive on it. Um, it's like I, I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't mind it, but like it would have to be combined. Like a massive expansion in housing construction is the main thing, yeah. especially because the people that tend to lose out from rent control are people trying to break into the rental market. Um, yeah, because like you know, if if they if there's all these rent controlled houses uh, where people are you know perfectly safe in them, um, then like people who might need those houses like more or trying to break in somewhere like might not you know be able to access them now because like people are sort of you know I guess it, it comes from people feeling more secure in their housing perhaps, um, but certainly like I think like the the best solution there is if you're going to have rent control, it needs to be supplemented with like housing for you know, that's available to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't end up kind of biting you in the ass and you end up creating a bigger problem down the track. And I think if we were to freeze now with without a more substantial plan for what we're going to do around it, we will will hurt people more in the long run. Because, I mean, I, I love the idea of a rent freeze, not having an increase. Rental prices are fucked at the moment. I'm looking at having to move and so I'm looking at, and I'm on the lucky end, I'm looking at a minimum $100 rise. And it's not ideal, but... Uh, definitely don't want to take that Band-Aid solution now for uh, a much larger problem and much more heartache in two years' time. Yeah. I think another another thing for me is so the Greens, like, making this big push on the federal level to increase housing and to take a strong stance on housing policy. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to pull any whataboutisms or anything, and I, I, I don't mind the Greens, like, federal stance, like, you know, in, in all that much, but... Uh, but like, what what the what the hell are the local of the state greens doing when it comes to housing? Uh, like, just like, uh, you know, all these campaigns being waged on like the the local and state level by greens parties, like against like new developments and like new new housing construction. Uh, I I remember seeing one thing about like local greens like pushing to like have a power plant maintain like heritage protection rather than like developing it into like a, an apartment block. It's just like, I see all this weird stuff in the greens and I'm like, you know, if you're going to take this strong stance on the federal level, I would like to see that reflected in how you push for housing on the local levels as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. It makes them seem uh, like a bit of a joke, which we definitely don't want. I mean, they can be a really valuable um, player in, in parliament. They can really push for some of these additional elements, but when they're kind of flip-flop and elsewhere, it just doesn't really help the position and it definitely doesn't help anyone. Um, what, yeah. what did you guys think? Because you've you've mentioned the NRAS um, scheme. What what did you guys think of NRAS? What, like, did it go far enough even then? And 
I mean, you look at the kind of caps on pricing. I remember looking at a few NRAS properties um, way back. Uh, for the for the maximum amount that you could be earning, the rent in comparison to that felt uh, disproportionate. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, maybe it's not as relevant, but I thought NRAS was maybe a little bit lacking. And so, you know, you kind of hope that um, future choices will be, um, you know, will we'll actually help and will actually make a difference. And I don't know, you, st- you kind of get a bit worried that things will just never really get to the mark they need to. Well, there's only so much you can do when you don't kind of structurally change the situation. What the problem is now is that uh, property has become a great place for people with way too much money to park their money. And um, it always goes up. And it's a finite resource. And as like, just like you were talking about a moment ago, Joel, about Greens in local and state government, uh, our local Greens dominated government is very against any new development or new land releases or new areas being opened up, even though housing prices have raised by 20% in this area. Rents have gone up in sub-suburbs by up to 50% on a house by house basis obviously it's uh it's an absolute dumpster fire but the only thing that's going to end you know i'm one of the furthest people from a capitalist as you'll find but i do think that the only thing that is going to solve this is either the government stepping in and going okay i'm going to buy a whole bunch of property and now it's not going to be your capital investment plaything and now you go play with something else with the money that i gave you to buy with but we're going to turn housing into not a commodity. It's going to be kind of a human right, something that we can all aspire to have a secure house. And it's no longer going to be something that we just allow the market to do whatever the hell it wants to. And kind of be the investment vector for most average middle class people now. All their wealth is tied up in their house. You try and get anything done electorally to cause that causes anything to house prices and you've got uh, the majority of the population with all of their wealth tied up in their house. Like it creates uh, the, there's 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 two ways. You can increase supply or the government can buy a whole bunch of property. And that's that's the only two ways that I can that I can see there being. And the thing is, one of them de- decommodifies it, and one of them, you know, keeps it commodified. But the supply is so much that it reduces the price of everybody's house anyway. So you know, it's rock and a hard place. There is no solution that doesn't hurt a lot of people. And by hurt, I'm I think that's a strong term. I mean hurt as in they were promised that they could always tie up all of their wealth in their house and now you know it's kind of at the expense of a lot of people who have to live incredibly precarious and uncomfortable lives for you to have the privilege to do so yeah uh obviously granting the the middle class you know uh access to to uh you know like petty bourgeois investment in the housing market was uh not a a great political choice when we when we sort of made it over the course of the past century um yeah so i i i would largely agree of course um i would say we should 
kind of do both of those things. Like, you know, we need to expand our social housing stock. Uh, but yeah, we do also just need to increase supply across the board as well. So I would say, you know, a social housing stock is like, it's like like eight, around eight nine percent currently i think of, of the of, uh, of our total housing stock um it, the the recommendation like 15 years ago was that it needs to like get up to like like i think like the teens or something clearly haven't done that so we need to do that um even though like yeah i think increasing housing stock across the board so like you know i'm not i'm not opposed to like private you know private rental housing as well but i think like everyone should like you know that like that should everyone should still be able to access like the the housing that they desire whether that be like a you know a nice government-owned rental property or whether that be like a a yuppie apartment in the city or something <laughs> um like so i think um yeah i think yes we need to do all of these things uh and the local greens need to stop being weird about 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 new developments um yes um cool so for our next topic uh moving away from housing and towards uh the law i suppose we could say uh we have ellie uh who will run us through some whistleblower stuff uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting one. Uh, so on Monday, Richard Boyle, an ATO whistleblower, was denied immunity under Australia's whistleblower protection laws in court. Boyle raised concerns about the ATO's aggressive debt collection practices uh, back in uh, 2017. These practices hurt a lot of people. They destroyed lives and uh, devastated small businesses. He will now face a criminal trial in October. And the judge has imposed an interim suppression order on the reasons for why she made this decision. It's the first time our whistleblower protections have been invoked in this way, uh, making it a major test for the Public Interest Disclosure, Disclosure Act. And, uh, well, it's, it's, it's failed that <laughs> test uh, this week. Uh, so Boyle appears to have done everything required of him under the Act. He raised his concerns internally first. This led to an internal investigation at the ATO. The investigation didn't really yield any results. They pretty much d dismissed it. Uh, so Boyle approached the tax ombudsman and then he approached the ABC, who then aired a story in 2018. The Act does make allowances for whistleblowers to approach third parties if the internal response hasn't really worked out. Uh, and indeed, a state, uh, a Senate inquiry confirmed the ATO's investigation was substandard. It was, they, they called it superficial. So I think it really goes to show that our whistleblower laws are in need of urgent reform. This isn't a new conversation. I, I think we've really known this for a while and uh, it's it's just been really interesting to see this play out in court the way that it has. Uh, the federal government have recently conceded that the protections are broken and they have committed to reform, but the nature of that reform is still really unclear. Richard Boyle is not the only whistleblower currently being pursued by the Commonwealth. David McBride, a military lawyer whose leaks to the ABC brought to light war crimes by Australian special forces in Afghanistan, also blew the whistle internally first, then went to the police and then turned to the media. His situation is a bit different. Uh, he's not as protected. He, he, because it's touching on uh, war and security, He's, he's even less protected under the law. Uh, so the Attorney General, um, Mark Dreyfus, he has the power to stop the prosecution of both whistleblowers, and he's done it before. Last year, um, the case against... Um, 
Bernard Kaliri was dropped. Kaliri, a lawyer, was being pursued for helping a client and veteran Australian Secret Intelligence Service member, known only to the public as Witness K, expose Australia's bugging of government offices in Timor-Leste during negotiations over oil and gas in the Timor Sea. So what do you guys think about this situation? Why, why do you think Mark Dreyfus won't step in and stop prosecuting these two? Uh, and do you think that Labor's commitment to reform whistleblower laws is, is genuine? I think this issue has low political salience, uh, and that's why, basically. <laughs> um, so I think Labor don't care about it that much because the electorate don't care about it that much, really. You know, it's a, it's a case of, you know, that, that doesn't really affect them in, any, in, in, the, in, the, in that sort of direct hip pocket sense. So I, I suspect that would be why. Uh, you know, Labor. You know, they would if they if they took too much action on it. Then, like, I don't know, they might have some Sky News goon on their on their back for being soft or something potentially. So they might not. They might just not want to risk it, which is pretty pretty cowardly, I would say. I, I don't I don't think that's the that's the correct response to this sort of thing. And I think Dreyfus should obviously pardon both of them. But yeah, uh, I I think unless people kick up kick up kick up, kick up a fuss. It will be unlikely. Yeah, I definitely think that it's something that we shouldn't. It shouldn't be left up to the whim of someone like the attorney the attorney general. We should have specific protocols that deal with this and protections that are in law that stop this from being something that is just basically up to the whim of um, the attorney general. Yeah, it's an interesting one. There was an inquiry uh, when the coalition was in government. This is probably going back six, seven years. And a recommendation was made that there's a separate body that kind of support whistleblowers, kind of help walk them through the process, uh, allow them to stay within the confines of the law and kind of provide them uh, options. Uh, and I think that's probably a really good idea. Uh yeah, I do think there isn't, there just isn't the political will. Um, we're definitely, it, it is really sad how little we care when uh, whistleblowers play a huge role. Um, the, I think we'd absolutely want to know if our special forces are committing war crimes in other countries. And we absolutely want to know if the ATO is, is um, aggressively pursuing the little man and, you know, has led to um, people taking their own lives. It's these are these are horrific things, and it, it is really sad that until it kind of is at our door, uh, we kind of just approach so much stuff with apathy. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rough. But you know, I'm blackpilled on the Australian voter. Don't don't care about anything but their house prices. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I especially don't care about about whistleblowers. I'm afraid. <laughs> what rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, so it's a rough situation. You know, what what if what if one of us has to has to whistleblow for a <laughs> edge of the crowd or something? Oh goodness! Enjoy uh, yeah. a, enjoy the rest of your life in prison. Is, uh, yeah, is really yeah, the yeah. yeah. yeah it's right. I'll, I'll get I'll get um I'll get Dan uh, Dan on side for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So keeping things on the topic of law and uh, judicial 
things. We have what's going on in, in Israel right now with the Netanyahu judicial reforms. So, Jason, would you like to walk us through these? So, in case anyone hasn't been keeping an eye on the news, Israel is blowing up. It's kind of imploding under the weight of a whole bunch of protests that have been happening, far greater than any kind of protests that have happened for years at this point. And it seems to kind of cut across political lines where there are kind of right-wing supporters who are saying that what Netanyahu is doing is, is actually threatening Israel's uh, security, which is the only thing that gets the far right on side in any situation. So what is Netanyahu doing? So he wants to reform. Uh, Israel has historically had a the way that its kind of constitution was constructed allowed for the judiciary to have quite a loud voice and quite a bit of power, like more than we have in Australia. Our, our judiciary really has in Australia to over override certain things that uh, the government wishes to legislate. And this was in order to... Well, the, the, the original impetus was to encourage moderation. So a lot of the ways that the judiciary does intervene in what the government is trying to do is almost 100% of the time just trying to not to stop them from doing something batshit crazy. Netanyahu wants the Knesset to have more power to override or reject laws that the Supreme Court reviews and would only require a simple majority of one vote for them to stop the Supreme Court from being able to check uh, some kind of legislation that they wanted to pass. He also wants to give the government more power over judicial appointments. The bill would increase the number of government nominees on the Judicial Appointments Commission, which selects the candidates for the higher judiciary. This would mean that the government would have basically much more of a say over who becomes a judge, increasing the government influence. And also, kind of interestingly, they propose a change in the law that would give ministers more discretion in making decisions that might have legal implications. So basically, ministers right now need to follow the advice of their legal advisors, who are guided by the Attorney General, and the, the proposed changes would mean that they no longer need to follow that legal advice. They can just do what they want. And a law has already passed that strips the Attorney General of the power to deem a Prime Minister unfit for office, which Netanyahu, for obvious reasons, thought might be used against him. Can't be anymore, because uh, they got rid of that. But he has backed down um, after the recent protests, but only out of one side of his mouth, because at the same time he got rid of the defense defense minister, which was the only person who spoke up against the proposed changes. And he said that he's putting a pause on it, but has not committed to reversing track. So what do you guys think about how we can fix the Middle East and uh, Israel in particular and get a two-state solution and also uh, free apartheid uh, Palestine? I'm so glad you asked. I have all the answers in this notebook here. Uh, I've just been waiting for someone to ask me because... <laughs> like, <laughs> I've also got solutions for world hunger. Um, so <laughs> maybe we can talk about that next week. I have no idea. <laughs> 
Well, but Net, uh, Net, well, I'll, I'll ask a real question. <laughs> Net, Netanyahu, what do you think the chances are of the corruption charges taking him down or him turning Israel, basically destroying Israel and it becoming a completely authoritarian state? It'll put the West in a bit of a pickle. I mean, if it does become more authoritarian, wouldn't doesn't it? Because we, I say we, it's really the US has kind of... They've kind of been budding up with Israel recently, and well, I suppose that's that's probably one of my big things is that would Israel even have the kind of political cachet and swagger it has without the backing of the U.S. And the answer is no. Yeah, um, a lot of what they do, they're able to get away with because the U.S. allows and condones the things that they do. So the question becomes: Does the U.S. want an an authoritarian state here? <laughs> What is your opinion? Do they? What they've been saying is no. But, you know, I think they want no. I think that they want Israel to at least have the veneer of a free democratic country because that's kind of always what the rhetoric is about. It is a it is the only kind of except for Tunisia democratic country in the MENA region. Yeah, I think there's there's two competing impulses within Israel that we can see playing out here and that is the first desire which is you know brand israel right like the desire to be seen as a rights respecting liberal democracy that uh, that contrasts with the rest of like the the authoritarians in the middle east uh but then simultaneously we have this impulse like towards authoritarianism basically that is like quite quite strong um, among among segments of the of the Israeli population and we see that you know in the fact that like Netanyahu has you know, being being in charge like for for so long, you know, despite his brief brief break, um, but uh, that he has been in charge for so long, and obviously that represents like the fact that yes, there is this 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 port, uh, you know, this this number of people in Israel, uh, that will prioritize you know the national security, if you want to call it that, of the Israeli state. Um, and of you know the protection of the uh, of the legal privileges for Israeli people, like they will prioritize this like above above everything else. Um, and, and what you know what we have to see is like will they prioritize that even over you know being that model of a rights respecting liberal democracy in the Middle East? And I think uh, <laughs> I think we will be we would we will be disappointed by what the by what the answer uh, to that would be. <laughs> Well, I guess the only thing that gives me any kind of hope is that they see, it seems like some elements at least of this protest movement at the moment are quite right, right wing and they see what's happening and what Netanyahu is doing as jeopardizing their security. But also, fun fact, one, one of the first uh, corruption charges that he's been charged, uh, prosecuted for is um, receiving too many cigars from James Packer. Interesting. Apparently, it was a consistent supply, <laughs> and it was consistent enough to be determined to be a payment. So, yeah, we're involved. There you go, through through cigar. <laughs> Excellent. Six degrees of separation. <laughs> yeah. Be interesting to see how it plays out. And if it hits a certain point, will the West have to condemn their actions? I'd like to see that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. 
probably probably not. I don't know. <laughs> it's too risky. Yeah, we don't we, we we don't have a great track record of condemning our allies in the Middle East. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Saudi, you know, Saudi Arabia. Uh, no, not even Saudi yeah. Arabia. I was gonna say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Um, yeah, I mean, Netanyahu is sounding like a, a good candidate to put in the bin, but we're actually going to take it away from Israel and towards America for our next segment and put it in the bin this week. Uh, because, of course, uh, recently there was another school shooting in the United States, uh, which is, of course, bin worthy in, in itself, maybe a bit more than the bin, in fact. Uh, but also, uh, you know, worthy of the bin has been the way that many pundits have responded to this uh to this school shooting issue uh because it seems that like it may possibly have been the case that the shooter was a transgender man uh we don't actually know yet i think all this information just sort of comes from like a linkedin profile or something so it's not it's not confirmed in any real sense to my knowledge but it seems that many in the US, largely from the Republican side of things, have taken this up as an opportunity to uh, to demonize trans people and to you know and to uh, you know lampoon the fact that they have access to guns and and so so um, not lampoon but lament the fact that they have access to guns and all and all this sorts of uh, you know horrible horrible things. So yes, uh, Republicans being weird and inappropriate about a school shooting they can all get in the bin and join the rest of the uh absolute cookies and weirdos this week yeah it's funny when the when it's like a 22 year old member of the third reich of america it's like oh mental health issues he must have been you know this and that uh, it's always like some kind of uh no we need to do more about mental health which is true but um it, they're just using it to deflect from the obvious fact that there are just way too many guns everywhere. Yeah. But this is one. This is one example where people like Tucker Carlson have been saying, "Yeah, they don't. Yeah, don't know about the Second Amendment when it comes to trans people having guns." And it's funny that they never ask this question about absolute crazy people on their side. It's interesting. Like, you know, you think, ah, oh, it's an interesting position to take. But humans are so very good at holding contradictory ideas at the same time and believing them with equal weight. And so this idea that, yes, we have to support the Second Amendment, but no, maybe maybe we do support certain people not having access to guns and not realising the contradictions there, I, that kind of rhetoric will sadly work really well if they want to pursue it. Uh, and that, yeah, I find that really depressing. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's got historic precedent with the California gun restriction laws in the uh, under Reagan um, being instituted because of the Black Panthers coming into town with uh, assault rifles, and then everyone suddenly going, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't all have guns." So yeah, there's, it is uh, it is the the profound and utter hypocrisy of American gun culture is uh, is alive and well, and this is another example of it. I think that is a good point to end on this week. Uh, so thank you for joining us. This has been Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowd's Politics podcast. You can find our stories on sports, culture, and also politics, of course, at edgeofthecrowd.com. And you can find us on social media, at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, what have you, all at Edge of the Crowd. Thank you again for joining us, and we will hopefully see you next week.
Because yeah, we well, know that's that the problem problems... for me. That is the problem for me. That speech by Dominic Perrottet. They're now saying, what a great speech it was by Dominic Perrottet last night, where he's basically saying, oh, fantastic. You've got a great premier here. We don't want Labour. Now we've got Labour. Thanks, Liberals. That's what you gave us. Thanks, Matt Keane. Thanks, Dominic Perrottet. You've given us a Labour government. We don't want one. That's not what the people of New South Wales want. OK, well, they might have voted for it.